This podcast contains depictions of violence and abuse perpetrated against children, including sexual abuse and rape, as well as suicide, institutional racism, intergenerational trauma, and a bit of swearing. But there's also friendship, love, inappropriate puns, and general skullduggery. The survivors of Lake Alice want their stories to be heard. But do take care when and where you listen. Stuff Podcasts. From Popsock Media and Stuff, this is The Lake, a podcast about the children of Lake Ellis. I'm Aaron Smale, and this is the final episode, number seven, The State is a Psychopath. We've heard a lot over the course of this podcast. When I first started looking into Lake Ellis, Someone who already knew a bit about it warned me, turn back now while I can. He was joking of course, but I get it now, and you probably do too. There's so much to this story. There's so many twisted threads and half-obscured truths that it can be hard sometimes to make sense of them. But as we head into the Royal Commission of Inquiry hearing into Lake Alice, here's what's important for us to remember. Between 1972 and 1978, Hundreds of children were sent to a unit in a rural psychiatric hospital in the Lower North Island called Lake Alice Hospital. There, they experienced horrific treatment at the hands of a child psychiatrist, Dr Selwyn Leakes, and his staff. No one was watching. The police failed them. The medical council and the health system failed them. Their legal guardian, the New Zealand government, failed them. The UN called it torture, and urged the government to let survivors be heard. And so here we are. You know, there were promises made back in 1999. We are now in T21. Why the fuck are we still going on about this shit? Why aren't you dragging this ass back over here? And why haven't you done it? I expect that there will be, because of the Royal Commission, an apology with some meaning. Not just we're sorry for that badness. Name that torture. I'm only one of a quarter of a million victims of institutional violations. I do think it's extremely important survivors have the chance to stand up and tell their stories. Depending which survivor you ask, you're going to get a different opinion about the Royal Commission. Some put a lot of hope in it, whereas others are suspicious and sceptical. After all, they've been in these situations before. But there's one part that they are looking forward to, and that's reconnecting with friends they made under the worst of circumstances. They may not always get on, but this shared experience has a way of forging a strong bond. When I first started talking to survivors of Lake Alice, the same names kept coming up. Eventually, I managed to weave together a picture of who knew each other. In 2018, when I met Rangi Whitcliffe, it didn't take long to figure out that he knew Tyrone Marks. As soon as I mentioned the joyriding in the station wagon with the rifle, Rangi knew exactly who I was talking about. Rangi and Tyrone had been great mates through thick and thin together, but they'd lost contact and hadn't seen each other for over 30 years. Then one day, I was driving through Otaki on my way to Wellington, with Tyrone following me in his car, and I saw Rangi. He was sitting on his front porch 
scrubbing his heels with a chunk of pumice. This was my chance to reunite them. I pulled over and pointed Rangi out to Tyrone. Then I stood back and watched as they approached each other. You know, I knew there was a little bit of tension, not from us, yeah. but from things that were, yeah. you know, sort of, and I hadn't seen you for that long. Yeah. They were a bit wary at first. And I knew that I'm going to fucking keep seeing you. But it didn't take long for them to warm up to each other. Oh, yeah, no, it was magic. It was a special moment to witness. It was about reconnecting to the past and, and having some gaps filled in that I couldn't put in myself. Once you have that connection a long, long time ago, you'll always have it, forever. Yeah. But with Rangi, because we've <laughs> done so much things together and we've been in the same places and we've crossed paths. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, been in Her Majesty's prison. All up, Rangi has spent 36 years out of 60 in and out of prison. Tyrone was inside for a bit too, but he managed to get off that track for his family. It was amazing to see how far he'd come in regards to looking after his family and giving up crime to bring up his daughters. Uh, obviously my calling in life um, uh, was to raise children by myself and that's what I've successfully done, you know, and I'm still doing it today. Tyrone's got four adult daughters, two of them are twins. They're all in their twenties now. Brody wants to see you. Do you want to see me? <laughs> you go granddad's house one day. Yeah, yeah, I'll see you. Yeah, you can come to my house. He loves you so much. I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's like obsessed with you. Tyrone brought his kids up on his own, and he walked everywhere with them when they were young. You can imagine one twin hanging off his back, the little ones in a double pram and the other twin walking along beside him. He's told me that social welfare turned up at his door once. He told them to F off, and they never came back. He's really proud of bringing up four good kids, who now have kids of their own. They've never been in serious trouble, though they won't shy away from a confrontation. They take after their dad in that way. As well as those four, Tyron has a 10-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. Not bad for a 61-year-old. As part of his plan to improve his life and look after his whanau, Tyron got two diplomas in counselling after his oldest girls had grown up. He also passed some papers towards a degree in the early 2000s. But there again, you know, um, it doesn't matter what achievements that I've earned, the doors still remain shut in your face. Your past is basically... A lifetime sentence. Although doors have continued to close on Tyrone, we could see what he had to offer. His qualifications, combined with his experience, meant we were keen to have him on board in the making of this podcast to support other survivors who wanted it as they told their stories. And after years of not seeing each other, it meant a lot to Rangi too. When I found out that he'd got his counselling qualifications, that even made it even more important that I reconnect back with my best friend because I needed a good counsellor that knew me and that I could trust. Um, that's a big issue in my life about trust. So um, it was good to be able to have Tyrone back and knowing that I, he always had my back when we were young, right through even when we were adults. So. But in the stories from Rangi and Tyrone's childhood, 
there's another name that keeps coming up, Vernon Sorensen. He was a third party to a lot of their mischief-making. Vernon lives in Auckland, which is exactly where we're headed for the Royal Commission. So I tracked him down. Hey, Vernon. Yeah, who's this? So, my name's Aaron Smale. I'm sitting here with a couple of old friends of yours. I'll get them to introduce themselves. G'day, mate. It's Tyrone. Good to hear you, Tyrone. Awesome, bro. <laughs> it's been a long time, bro. Yeah, bro, many years late. What you been up to? Um... On June 14th, 2021, me and the podcast producer, Kirsten, travelled to Auckland to sit in on the first few days of the Lake Alice hearing. James, I haven't been up this way for years. We met up with Tyrone, and then we were off to see his old mate Vernon. Vernon's this short Māori guy who's always got a cheerful demeanour. He's invited us to meet him outside his flat off Karangahape Road. We look up and spot him waving from his ninth floor balcony, and a few minutes later, he's out at street level. Young fella. Is it, bro? <laughs> we were look, I was looking at the wrong building. We broke off all their view, eh? Do you get a park? Or is that nah. just for the parkhouse? Just for the parkhouse. <laughs> it's a pretty sweet reunion. But we're still brothers. We're still brothers. Yeah. We're saving up all this years, my bro. I've walked and told you, my brother. Yeah, same. My place would have been missed, but don't worry about it. You're welcome. Come on. Vernon shows us around his tiny state housing flat. Harbour Bridge. Huh? Sky Tower. Which looks over the pink cycle path in the casino. On the table, there's a photo of him sitting with the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, at a charity dinner, when she was still a backbench MP. <clears throat> Whenever I see her, I go, Jacinda. And Jacinda goes, Vernon. <laughs> you got a mobile number? Nah. Vernon's a big-hearted guy who loves people and loves to help. He lived on the streets around here at one point, and he spent a bit of time giving back to the community, volunteering down at the city mission and at LifeWise. These days, Vernon catches the bus everywhere, but he always had a thing for cars. Vernon's love for cars has gotten him into a little bit of trouble over the years. Rangi and Vernon were at Lake Alice together, and once during a field trip to the movies, they decided to make a run for it and stole a classic car. Rangi's actually told me this story before. But he knew how to drive. I'm down on the floor doing the accelerator clutch buzz. He's, he's got the column change and the steering wheel. So we're, that's us, we're in, we're off. They were 11 and 12 at the time and they were small. So they had to share driving duties. Rangi was down on the floor doing the gas and brakes while Vernon was steering. But he could barely see over the steering wheel. We got caught. And we got shot driven since we got back. They got three days of zaps for that, and they were put in Villa 8 with the worst adult patients. But that's not even Vernon's best car story. Once, he took off with a 19-tonne coal truck when he was six years old. Because the keys were still in the ignition, and I drove it. I drove it down Tower Key, down the bottom of town. Yeah. I drove past that pub. This was in Whanganui, and unfortunately for Vernon, his uncle was sitting in that pub. He saw the truck driving itself down the road and thought for a second that maybe he'd had one too many drinks. So he rang the police, and they picked me up. And that's when I was put in the family home. The family home. It's another type of foster care, 
where four or five young kids could be placed all at once. This was Vernon's introduction to the state welfare system at six. Eventually, he was admitted to Lake Alice in 1972, and he was in and out of there as a teenager and young adult right up to 1981. Dr Selwyn Lex saw Vernon as a lost cause, like so many of the other Māori boys. In 1976, Lex wrote a report about him that said, he will seek out his own controls in the form of stone walls and iron bars provided by the Department of Justice. Did you ever make him any drinks? No. I would have pissed him off. <laughs> I would have. That's well, exactly what I did. Was to make him his tea. <laughs> yeah, I would have pissed him before I made him. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. I guess we do think alike. Eh? Yeah, we do. Mm. <laughs> the last time Tyrone saw Vernon, he'd just been in a car crash. Vernon, that is. Vernon was 16, and his friend who was driving went way too fast around a corner. The car ended up wrapped around a lamppost. Vernon was in a coma for weeks and spent nine months in hospital. Well, what happened, I heard through the grapevine that you just they had a car accident, a really bad one. This is Tyrone. The message was that he had massive brain injuries from it. So I, just, I was working in Auckland. Just dropped the tools and walked off. Skipped trains and stuff and just to get down there. And that's how I made it there. And yeah, and when I seen you I thought, oh fuck, yeah, this ain't my mate. He's, you know, and I just couldn't look at you, not because of anything else, but I Conditionalism. You know, yeah, yeah, you were yeah, you were, you were just smashed. Smashed in pieces basically. Tyrone couldn't cope with seeing his good friend in such a bad way, and so he left. Vernon's speech can be a little slurry, and his timelines can get confused, which is probably a result of his head injury. But he can also be as sharp as a tack. He can tell you the exact number of times he was punished with shock therapy in the villas he was placed in. He remembers what he had for breakfast at Lake Ellis, and he can run through the routine of being in the maximum security block. He has a great imitation of one of the nurses cackling. (laughs) That laugh, that laugh. Vernon used to drink a lot to try and drown his memories, but the Salvation Army helped him out when he needed it. This led him to Alcoholics Anonymous and to God. People, people, people matter most. And as you see by my big book there, They've also told me that um, they got my past, they got put in God's hands. Because otherwise it's going to drag me under. And a lot of things have dragged me under. But I did the 12 steps. And I learned to hand things over. Let go, let God. Right, that's your guys' preach for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Vernon will sign you, follows up. (laughs) It's great watching these two guys together They're quite different Vernon doesn't swear as much as Tyrone for a start And where Tyrone might go in for revenge Vernon's a bit more laid back So if Lex was right here now Would you throw him over the top? No I would I wouldn't Just let justice do its thing Just let justice do its thing Just let justice do its thing 
We head off down K Road, but it's slow going. Vernon keeps stopping to give everyone a hug and a kia ora. Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? He knows everyone around here. Well, everyone knows him. <laughs> she knows me. She knows me. This all counts. Oh, that's outstanding, bro. That's how famous I am, bro. <laughs> Vernon's due to have a hip replacement soon. It was fractured in that car crash. So he sort of shuffles along, dragging a leg. And you might have heard Tyrone wheezing. He has a lung condition, which means he has to stop and catch his breath every 10 metres. Their mate Rangi isn't with us on this particular day, but he's had cancer three times, and he's developed diverticulosis, a stomach condition, from not eating his vegetables. In the 1990s, a couple of big studies in the US looked at the relationship between trauma and neglect in childhood, and health in adulthood. These studies are known as the Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACE studies, and they looked at the presence of things like psychological, physical and sexual abuse, neglect and violence in the home, and having family members with substance abuse issues or who struggled with mental illness or were imprisoned. All things experienced by most of the people in this series. And then they compared that data to the physical health of those same individuals in adulthood. They found that the higher someone's ACE score was, or trauma score, the higher risk of cancer, skeletal fractures, liver disease, heart disease, stroke, and chronic lung disease. I still suffer every day. I'm still a victim. I, I hate that word survivor now. We blame the whole system. And so long as we're alive, we're still going to be coming at you, left, right, and centre. There's no way that we're going to just let it go. I'm going to let it go until I die. So I can't do it anymore. And then probably my children will take it up. So, you know, it's a long ride. While around 300 children went through the Lake Alice Child and Adolescent Unit, we're only going to hear from about 20 during the Royal Commission hearing. Some of them, like Vernon, just aren't up to the task of giving evidence in public. And others didn't survive to tell their stories at all. One of the reasons Paul Zenfeld hasn't given up is because of a mate, Willie Taku, who took his own life before the government paid out compensation. A guy called Carl Perkins got out of Lake Alice and grew up to become a member of New Zealand reggae bands Herbs and House of Shem, but he died of bowel cancer in 2018, aged 58. There's others who either died from suicide or from health issues that might not have been a problem if their childhoods were different. And they're on a lot of people's minds as the Commission starts its hearing into Lake Yellows. Please be seated. I just wish to welcome everybody today, whether you are a survivor, a member of the general public, you're very welcome to this hearing. Children were subjected to abuse, including sexual abuse, while at the unit. Some staff were among the perpetrators. Sometimes the children fell victim to older and bigger children. The children were also subjected to abuse masked in the terminology of orthodox therapeutic interventions, 
that in fact were nothing of the sort. How were they able to be electrocuted without anaesthetic or muscle relaxant for punishment, for none other than getting four Ds that week in school, for not speaking up in group therapy? Looking around the room as lawyers give their opening statements, I see a lot of familiar faces. There's Hakehalo, the Nguyen boy who wrote letters from Lake Ellis to his grandmother. There's Dr Oliver Sutherland, the anti-racism campaigner and one of my favourite people. There's Paul Zenfeld and his Scientology mates from CCHR. And there's Leonie McEnroe, still fighting, such a long way from the little girl who lay quiet and scared in the dark. After nearly 50 years, there's finally a public reckoning. But someone is missing. Dr Lex is 92 years old. This is Hayden Rattray. He's the lawyer representing Dr Selwyn Leakes. Rattray is beaming into the Commission from Australia via video link to tell us all that Lex has had his health condition assessed by a neuropsychologist. He has metastatic prostate cancer, ischemic heart disease, chronic kidney dysfunction. Dr Leakes' cognitive functioning is most likely suggestive of Alzheimer's disease. And his functional decline is also supportive of a diagnosis of dementia. As a core participant in this quarry, Dr Leakes has the right to give evidence and to make submissions. But he is, by virtue of his age and cognitive capacity, manifestly incapable of doing either. Dr Leakes is neither aware of the matters before the inquiry nor cognitively capable of responding to them. There's been rumours flying around that Leakes has Alzheimer's, but this is the first time we've heard it officially. There's a collective groan around the room. Given Leakes' history of slipping the noose right at the last minute, there's some people wondering if his condition is as bad as his lawyer is making out. But nothing can be done about it. It's time to start. Judge Coral Shaw is in charge of the formalities. Hake, do you solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm that the evidence you will give before this commission will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you very much. It makes sense that the boy whose case first made this all public and whose teacher had a vision of him leading the rest of the kids out of Lake Ellis is the one to lead off in this first significant public hearing. Hakehalo is now an elder of his church. He's dressed all in white and flanked by support people, including Dr Sutherland. He starts off with a verse from the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then he describes his time at Lake Alice. But as kids, we do know that somebody's always getting his ET because you can hear the screams from, from upstairs, coming downstairs to us kids in the, in the lounge, in the TV room. You can hear them screaming. Even the workers there that are working around there, they can hear it. And they're doing their jobs and crying at the same time. Is there a, a phrase there that you recall Dr Leakes using in relation yes. to you? What did he call you? An uncontrollable animal. And what do you say in reply? I just return that back to him. It's, he's just writing about his own self. After Hake, Dr Oliver Sutherland takes the stand. His accord supporters are here in the courtroom taking notes, just like they were at the magistrate's inquiry. Well, 
Madam Chair, here we are after 45 years. Yes, uh, uh, late, uh, but it's never too late for justice. There's support people dotted around the room, ready with a spare shoulder and box of tissues. One of those is Kath Costa, who's a state welfare survivor herself. Kath's related to a few of the survivors of Lake Ellis, including Tyrone. Kath's been making sure everyone's up to date with the commission over Facebook. And she did an impromptu interview with Tyrone this morning, ahead of his testimony. So how early were you up this morning? Four. Four o'clock. Okay, so, so Tyrone has been out there getting prepared mentally for today. Um, to do what he needs to do for all of us. Good morning, Riley. Rangi's gone up to put a suit up. I'm going to post up a picture of them, both prepared to go to the table. Oh, he's, he's, well, they're going to be dressed up like professional men. Because today it's about doing business, telling the truth. Tyron's in a maroon suit that looks like it's straight out of the 70s. He's polished his Italian shoes just for this day. Let's hope that if we achieve anything, as everybody in that auditorium is on eggshells waiting to see what's coming next. Because, you know, that's a reminder for all those children in state here that used to sit on eggshells waiting to see what was coming next. So good morning, Tamara. Darling, love you. Um, As he takes the stand, Tyrone tells us that today's actually an anniversary for him. 15th of June, 2021 marks 49 years since my first admission to Lake Ellis. It's not a celebration, but it's, it's an acknowledgement that here we are today, after 49 years, and we finally get to, to talk about this in length, as it happened, and who was responsible. I seen more than a hundred children in my time there who suffered, who were traumatized, who screamed, who that it wrecked their life. And I'm saying that there were only a small handful of us that survived that onslaught. And we watched many of our brother and sister survivors in other wards that lost their spirits and that were damaged beyond repair. You know, the impacts of what's happened, it doesn't stop. This is tattooed into our whole bodies as a continuous reminder of of what happened. You know, most people have dreams and happy, good dreams. Most of our dreams are nightmares. Those that have died those that have lost their memories and those that that can't even speak for themselves. It's part of their story because I've seen this happen. Mm. So that's what I want to acknowledge. Thank you, Tyrone. Um, this is the chair, Judge Coral Shaw. Thank you very much indeed. And it was very shocking. It was very shocking. Another Tyrone pun. He can't help himself. The atmosphere heading into Rangi's statement is emotionally charged. Rangi has been highly stressed and volatile in the lead-up to this. The Commission has decided it won't live-stream Rangi's testimony. 
He doesn't even want his partner in the room. But Tyron and Vernon, his childhood mates, are right there up front with him. The lawyer Alana Thomas introduces Rangi and sings a waiata chosen by him. The lyrics of that waiata, Matitika, Matipono, Mete Aroha E, there can be justice and truth only if there is love. Rangi's also given the lawyers a hard time leading up to the hearing, and he's decided he doesn't want them asking him questions. He knows his story and will tell it how he needs to. Instead of bailing, doing a runner, Rangi fronts and calmly gives a brief but devastating account of his time in state custody as a child that focuses predominantly on Lake Alice. He goes in without notes and gives a statement in one powerful monologue over 50 harrowing minutes. I was personally told, your mum and dad don't love you, Rangi. They don't want you. You are a state ward, and we will do what we like. Dr. Selwyn Leakes, while he was electrocuting me, was asking me, how do you feel? So he decides to move the electrodes from my temple region down to my jaw. And said to me, yes, I think that's the spot. I think I can make you scream louder. There was also a staff member who signed me out of the hospital and took me home to his home. He raped me and he sodomised me. I am absolutely terrified to be here today. And every part of me wanted to run. But I have to. I have to for my family, for the men who find it very hard to describe and articulate what happened to them. During his testimony, there's a moment where Rangi can't remember a name, and Vernon shouts it out. Rangi talks about that time he woke up with stitches after being raped in Villa 8. Vernon's in tears, with Kath Costa's arm around him. By the time Rangi is done, even Judge Shaw is in tears, and there's heartfelt applause. Ah, uh, there's nothing to be said. 
<laughs> You've moved me deeply. But I do want to say this. This room, you could hear a pin drop. So know that you have been heard. And what has been heard is your real account of what happened to you. And what has been heard is your cry for justice and accountability. Rangi and Tyrone have made it clear that it's not just legs who should be held accountable. The state failed them at every level. And they've illuminated the long-term effects of the trauma that they went through in their childhood, as well as the intergenerational trauma inherited by their children. You have committed the ultimate sin of intergenerational systematic abuse. How do I as a father, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather fix this? I can't. The hearing into Lake Ellis is two weeks long. On day three, we're at home with Tyrone when he gets a call from his lawyer, Francis Joychild. We just happen to be there. Hi, Francis. Francis is calling because a survivor named Walton Ngatai Matheson has just given evidence. And he has said something that Tyrone will want to know. Really? When Walton was a kid at Lake Ellis, he says that one of his friends died during ECT. Wow. When was that? 1972. Whoa. Whoa, that's been, that's been hidden. Tyrone is stunned, but he's not entirely surprised. Um, do you reckon, oh, I mean, someone's got to investigate that, wouldn't they? Because there has to be a, some paperwork somewhere. Wow, that's, that's, that's powerful stuff, that. Yeah, it's very powerful stuff. When you first start learning about Lake Ellis, you hear all sorts of theories, and this is one I've heard before, that kids are buried there. But I haven't found any proof so far. We do know that there was a morgue on site at Lake Ellis to deal with geriatric patients who died. And at Tokanui, the psychiatric hospital near Te Aumutu, there are 457 unmarked graves, including those of young people. And we've started hearing international stories about this sort of thing recently as well, like at the residential schools in Canada. Is it possible that at least one child died at Lake Alice, maybe even while they were getting shock treatment? If so, why has it taken nearly 50 years for this to be disclosed? How was it missed by the people in charge, by the police, the medical profession, the media? This is the reason for the Royal Commission. Survivors' stories are finally being heard. And this time, it's not being done in a cloak of secrecy. Over the course of the hearing, we don't just hear from survivors of Lake Ellis. A child psychologist named Dr Barry Parsonson, who's also an expert in ECT and aversion therapy, demolishes Dr Leake's defence of his shock treatments, saying clearly what we already know, that this was not ECT. Is that electrical aversion therapy? No. And actually, he goes a bit further than that. What is that? 
form of torture. I mean, the only people who did that were state organs of terror, namely the Gestapo is a good example. We also hear from a number of witnesses who tried to raise the alarm. There's a former housemaster from Holdsworth School named John Watson, who was studying for his psychology degree at the time. Rangi and Tyrone were two of the boys in his caseload. Watson was concerned about a number of things, and one of them was the behaviour of Jack Drake. You might remember Drake as the combi-driving paedophile who moved from Campbell Park to Holdsworth. Watson was watching as a steady stream of boys was sent to Lake Ellis by Drake, and he wanted to know why Drake wasn't following up with these boys. I told him that because he was the main person sending the boys to Lake Ellis, he should have been monitoring their well-being while they were in the hospital. Um, and he tried to stop me from removing the boys from Lake Alice and told me that Dr Silverlix was the only one who could make decisions to discharge patients. So a couple of days later, I collected the boys from Lake Alice myself. I was that concerned about their safety. Tyrone's got a theory of his own about why Drake was sending so many kids on to Lake Alice. He believes that Drake was hoping a bit of shock treatment from Dr Leakes might erase their memories of his abuse. Watson actually found out that Drake was abusing the kids, and so was another guy, Duncan MacDonald, so he went to the police. But nothing happened. Watson also confronted Dr Leakes about the shock treatment and peraldehyde punishments that the boys were telling him about. I believe what the kids were telling me. I knew them well, and when they were telling lies, after I spoke with the boys, I approached Selwyn Leakes about the boys' allegations. He was defensive, denied that the ECT had been given as punishment, and said the boys were lying. His response was along the lines of, I know what I'm doing, I'm the psychiatrist here, you're just a psychologist in training. The evidence is damning. So who's going to take responsibility for it? The Royal Commission is an important forum, but its powers are limited. It can call people to give evidence. It can make findings and recommendations, but that's pretty much it. The Royal Commission can't offer victims' compensation. It can't lay criminal charges. In other words, it can't bring about justice, though it has made some examine their actions and choices. During the Commission's hearing, the New Zealand Medical Council admits that it failed the children of Lake Ellis and apologises. The council is apologising for not taking the right action. If it was today, there is no way Dr Lex would be practising. The police looked at their previous investigation and realised that they had failed too. They also apologise. The apology was read out by Detective Inspector Tom Fitzgerald. The New Zealand police accept that in 2002 to 2010, police did not accord sufficient priority and resources to the investigation of allegations of criminal offending at the Child and Adolescent Unit at Lake Ellis Psychiatric Hospital. So many terrible things happened at Lake Ellis and in the years after. But one of the worst parts has been the way the state has repeatedly dodged responsibility. It tried to find ways to discredit victims. It stalled legal proceedings. It tried to suppress information. 
it failed to investigate its own crimes. When Leonie McEnroe filed her civil litigation in 1993, Crown Law dragged out her case for nine years, avoiding the courts and the scrutiny it would entail. Ironically enough, it was actually Dr Legg's lawyer, Hayden Rattray, who summed this up best. This commission is about much more than the alleged conduct of Dr Leakes. In fact, I would submit that the true focus of the commission is and should be on the myriad failings of a system that, among other failings, has allowed such serious allegations to go untested for near on half a century. One of the undeniable themes of this commission has been that justice delayed is justice denied. How has the Crown allowed such serious allegations to go untested for so long? If the state isn't going to do its job in holding people accountable, whose job is that? Survivors? Mine? This goes high, obviously you know that. This goes way up to the top of the pecking order. For years and years they've tried to shut it all down all the time, using like the Crown. Even though they are aware of all these pedophiles, they know that they are pedophiles. A lot of those ones that have been named have been convicted in, in court for being pedophiles, for being sexual abusers, for the whole lot. And yet these guys just hide behind privileged information or the statute of limitations or using the court system to their advantage, knowing that what these survivors are saying is absolutely correct. It's true. At the hearing, Solicitor General and Head of Crown Law, Una Jagos QC, apologises to Leone on behalf of the Crown. Jagos acknowledges that Leone wasn't treated with respect and dignity, and that the Crown's actions compounded her trauma. She also admits that Crown Law treated her this way intentionally, because they were worried about Leone's case setting a precedent, and of other survivors following suit and asking for higher compensation but the Crown doesn't specifically apologise to anyone else. All of those terrible things that happened, when you seek justice for that alone, and that justice turns into intimidation and bullying and deception, you know, the Crown has been deceptive. They've operated with um, trickery and intention to be manipulating and controlling and all-powerful over the situation of or any attempt of justice. I've checked out the DSM-5, the textbook for psychiatrists, and there's actually one diagnosis in it that jumps out at me when I think about how the state has acted. The state has acted without genuine remorse, without empathy, and with no insight into its offending. The state has been calculated and manipulative. And if past behaviour is anything to go by, there's a fairly high chance of reoffending. Not only did the state allow violent crimes to be committed against children, it then worked out ways to get itself off the hook by manipulating the system that it was in charge of. The state ticks all the boxes for a diagnosis of a psychopath. Today, I would like to acknowledge with deep gratitude this Royal Commission of Inquiry. We're back at the hearing for closing statements on the last day. This is Leonie McEnroe speaking on behalf of survivors. This Royal Commission of Inquiry 
While not a perfect process, it has nonetheless worked extremely hard and diligently to assist us in telling our story. The darkness and shame we have carried has begun to lift in the light of exposing the truth of what we suffered at the hands of so many for so long. This hearing may be for some the healing balm to gently move forward, but this hearing must create change. Alana Thomas, the lawyer who helped Rangi prepare for the hearing, reads out a whakatauke to finish. The way in which the young sapling is nurtured determines how the tree will grow. In this context, the whakatauke speaks to the duties and the obligations we have as a nation to ensure that all children in stake here are given the protection, guidance and nurture required so that they may grow to be confident, secure and happy adults. We've been talking about the Crown as the parent. Well, that idea comes from a legal doctrine of parents patriae, which assumes that the Crown has the right to step in as the parent. The King is the father. But how does this sit with a Māori worldview and the Treaty of Waitangi, which says Māori never gave up rangatiratanga, or autonomy, over things that they hold most dear, like their children and mokopuna, In reports from early European settlers in Aotearoa, traders, artists, missionaries and explorers, they talk a lot about Māori children and how they were indulged. They weren't physically punished. But the settlers didn't understand that this leniency came about from the fact that children were expected to mess things up in te ao Māori. There's a whakatauki that goes, Ko te mahi a te tamariki, he wāwahi taha. It means... It is the job of children to break the calabash. The proverb is a rebuke to adults. Get over it. Kids are meant to make mistakes. It's how they learn. It's no big deal. The Māori word haututu means mischief. I think it's also where we get the saying tutu fingers. Sometimes it's said with exasperation, but also admiration. Go through any Māori tribal history, and the heroes are the troublemakers, the mavericks. Think about Maui, the trickster, the greatest Polynesian hero of all. A child who was born premature and cast out, only to rise to legendary status. Maui was a delinquent, but he's also a hero. It's all too easy to see what might have happened to Maui if he were born in Aotearoa in the 1960s or 70s. How his behaviour might have been corrected by Pākehau experts who felt they knew better. It's just as easy to see how things might have turned out differently for kids like Rangi or Tyrone if they'd been born into an Aotearoa that didn't yet know colonisation. How their energy might have been guided in a direction that benefited their communities. How their initiative and leadership skills might have been celebrated, their voices heard. Sure, they might have been told off, but they would have also been held. They would have been loved.
at the very start of this podcast, Rangi told us how proud he was to be above ground and still alive. Sure, him and Tyrone and the others are a bit distorted here and there, but what do you expect? At least they made it. And that's worth celebrating. So it feels fitting that we finish the series with a birthday party. Happy birthday to you. On September 26th, Rangi turned 60, and his partner Dawn threw him a birthday party to celebrate. It's only the second birthday party that Rangi has ever had. Tyrone hooned down from Hamilton in his Jag V8, just to be there. It's uh, such a pleasure to be able to uh, hook up with you again and spend your 60th at your house. So, love you, brother. And you're so lucky, mate. Kia ora, that's all. It was really fun watching Rangi be the centre of attention for something positive. He was like an excited little kid. He had a few words to say and a few people to thank as well. Tōrapana, you all know who I am. We've had quite a year this year, Dawn and I, and um, we've overcome some major hurdles. One of them being was to repair my family. Rangi first fell in love with Dawn when he was 19, and they had a son. But then Rangi went back to prison, and Dawn married someone else. After her first husband passed away, Dawn and Rangi reunited five years ago. They've been working hard to deal with the trauma that Rangi has been through and to try and make things right for the next generation. To get their mokopuna out of the state's hands. Um, for me today, it's special because the people that have supported me shoe stake here, uh, all the people in this room at this very moment mm. have been part of that journey. And I thank you all. There's the one person that I am going to put on a pedestal is is my darling. She's been there for me and the strength and love that I have for my child strengthened me to move forward with what I'm doing in my life. Uh, have a better future for my my mokos, my grand mokos. Uh, I am so happy. Woo. Nice. Okay, what's your wife's <laughs> Rangi and Tyrone are just two of the hundreds of kids that went through Lake Alice. And they're just two of the thousands that went through foster homes and state-run welfare homes. Collectively, their stories are yet to be fully heard and understood by Aotearoa. So often, we read headlines agonising about what to do about gangs, about violence in the home, world-leading suicide rates, oranga tamariki uplifts, and the over-incarceration of Māori. And we seem to be baffled by where it all comes from. Well, we do well to learn our history. Violence begets violence. And the New Zealand state has perpetrated violence on a huge scale against children. Reuniting Rangi and Tyrone has been one of the best things about telling this story. It's been a privilege to be a small part of that friendship, a friendship forged in the worst of circumstances. But all the deeper for that. And it's also been a privilege to play a small part in helping them tell their stories. The children of Lake Alice were written off as disposable, 
bottom of the barrel, by the people who were meant to care for them. And then they were silenced for more than 40 years. Thank you for listening, for giving them the dignity of finally being heard. I know this will have meant a lot to them. So, this is the end of our telling of this story. But we're going to finish off with Rangi's 60th birthday. There's a waiata that was sung that night by one of Dawn's whānau, Lisa Maraki. She wrote it about the closing of the freezing works in Pātea and Taranaki and the economic and social damage it caused. The words are a fitting way to end this story because it's not just about Pātea. It's about how we value the children of Aotearoa. Lake was researched and hosted by me, Aaron Smale. It was produced, edited and scripted by Kirsten Johnston and Melody Thomas at Popsock Media. Tyrone Marks helped support survivors during our interviews. Ben Lemmy wrote music for the series and recorded the narration. Mark Chesterman did sound design and the final mix. At Stuff, our script advisors were Eugene Bingham and Adam Dudding, and the commissioning editors were Carol Hirschfeld and Patrick Crudson. Ella Bates-Hermans designed the podcast logo and our website was created by the Stuff Projects team. This podcast was made with the support of New Zealand On Air. Thank you to Rangi, Tyrone, Leone, Hake, Kevin, Paul, Vernon, Sharon, and every survivor who spoke with us for this series. It could never have happened without you. Thank you. Goodbye. You're still recording me? Okay. <laughs> okay.